0: One of the first things I heard about this game was how disappointing it was, how bad it was, how not worth the expense it was, how short it was. Um, if anybody is in that camp and would like to tell me why they think that, please feel free to do so. Now, don't mistake me. Uh, this game certainly got a lot of gameplay negatives for me. Twelve, actually. But the story, I think, is something like a net positive twenty-one? I really liked playing through this game, and a lot of those gameplay negatives were things that I modded out in order to do so. That's why they're still negatives. Just because I can fix it with external sources doesn't mean it's not still a problem. So I'll acknowledge that. I had to mod the game to make it functional, because it had this built-in mouse uh, like acceleration thing, which just kind of made aiming weird and awful and wrong. And it had this weird... Uh, it, it would use depth of field, which just blurred everything out, which was giving me a headache. And the FOV was just weird. And there was just all sorts of options which were just wrong. Which, you know, that mo- uh, I pushed, pushed in a couple of mods and you know changed some initiative files, and that actually fixed all those issues. But that's... Like, once that was done, I still enjoyed most of the rest of the game. The game still did several things right from a gameplay perspective. The perks were okay. Not as fancy as they could be. Leveling was okay, relatively fast. I played the whole game on normal difficulty, by the way, since everyone likes to ask that question. The sprinting auto-run thing was stupid, and stupid for many reasons. If you don't understand what I mean by that, uh, a lot of games have an auto-run button. It's usually caps lock for some strange reason. And that just means you move forward without having to hold down W, right? If you don't understand why this is a problem, than you've never experienced this before, because having to do this for long periods of time is actually painful after a certain point, and it's certainly irritating even after a short point, especially for games where you go forward for a long period of time. Looking at you, Ghost Recon Wildlands. So a game that has an auto-run, that's a good thing, right? This game doesn't have an auto-run. It has an auto-sprint, which is the first time I have ever seen this. So you hit auto-sprint, and you will sprint forwards, which has several issues, ignoring the fact that it changes the FOV. It also is a sprint action, which is something that will, you know, cause issues with regards to how sprinting works in the game. The most obvious one being that if you're burdened, you can't sprint. So you lose the ability to do anything other than hold down W the moment you're burdened. Oh, I know, you can pick a perk and waste Ace two levels, effectively, in order to fix that situation by allowing you to fast travel as long as you're away from encounters. But What? Weird decision choices like that are just really help drag the game down. It's also worth noting that the overwhelming majority of the combat was merely serviceable, in my opinion. At first, I was willing to praise the weak spot system, but then I realized there's no reason to. Because we've seen weak spots in games since, like, I'm actually not sure when, to be honest with you. Uh, I think it would be after Doom, but I'm not sure when that came in. How many games have you played where you will kill someone instantly or do more damage if you get in a headshot? Congratulations, there's a weak spot system. The only thing this game does is it makes it so that robots have separate weak spots, little energy canisters on their back or underneath their chassis if they're the hovering kind, and it likes to penalize you severely for not hitting their weak spots. That's the other thing the game does wrong. Especially in late game, very much in late game, the health padding on the enemies gets ridiculous. The difficulty is what I call lazy difficulty. It changes how much health they have, it changes how much damage they do. Lazy. Straight up lazy difficulty. I know there's the survival mode, that is a little bit different, but the straight difficulty options just change those two variables. So you have enemies that take, they have tons of health that barely take any damage unless you're hitting them with, from their weak point. And you see the problem here. Effectively, it's penalizing rather than just allowing you to do whatever. And don't even get me started on the pseudo-vats, which was okay, I guess? But ultimately, unless you spec completely into it, it feels a little bit too limited. These are some of my bigger complaints about the game. There's others. You can look at the review if you want the specifics. I want to talk about some of the things the game did right, if that's okay with you. The first thing the game did right was proper dialogue options. Yes, this is a gameplay thing, in my opinion, because while it affects the story, this is the aspect of how exactly you are playing the game. For me, dialogue options and the design that goes into dialogue options has always been on the gameplay axis far more than the story one. Um, Being able to have something like a dialogue boss, having multiple different paths that can be unlocked via multiple different skills... Try not to lock you into a specific skill, which is the go-to for all things. See, diplomacy in most video games. Sometimes it's called something different, but most games have a diplomacy stat. And this one, you would have diplomacy occasionally. Sometimes you'd have medical. Sometimes you'd have science or engineering. There's like eight or nine stats, and all of those stats also affect your combat, the out-of-dialogue option stuff. So every single one of those is still useful for your core combat, regardless of being useful for the core dialogue. That's good design. That's actually brilliant. There's also the fact that the companions you bring can have things to say as well, which can change the dialogue, which isn't a big deal. But what is a big deal is the fact that they actually boost some of your stats while they're in the party, and you can change what is boosted by how much, depending on which spec you pick for them, which, which talents you pick. All this is good stuff. Then there's the flaws system. Now, the flaws system I don't want to gush too much about, even though it's a fantastic idea. The reason I don't want to gush too much about it is because it's not used as much as it should be. But I do love the idea of the flaws system. The way it works is you encounter a certain type of scenario enough. And having encountered it enough, you then get a pop-up. Now, if you're not on survival mode, what you get is an option. Do I want to take this flaw? And in so doing, gain a free perk point right now. Just bam, like that. Or you can skip it. Now you're probably thinking, well, hang on, you're being too vague here. Well, let's say you take a lot of plasma damage. So you can take a plasma damage weakness in exchange for a perk point. Let's say you encounter a lot of gorillas, so you can be afraid of primals. You know, stuff like that. It is a fantastic idea. Being able to deliberately nerf your ability to function in order to give yourself a benefit in another way is one of the more interesting methods of character design and customization that I've ever encountered. It reminds me of more than anything of GURPS, actually. Some of you are probably familiar with that. The reason it's not super amazing and why I don't want to gush about it too much is because again it's pretty limited. There's only so many perks that you can get that are useful. There's only so many flaws you can get that are you know acceptable and some of the flaws are very detrimental and so not really worth picking up. But that leads me to something they did that was much better. The shroud system. This is awesome. The way this works is you get this holographic thing that projects an image of you being cool while you're in a restricted area. You know what a restricted zone is, right? I mean, you've played Deus Ex, you've played Fallout or whatever. Um, I think Dishonored did this as well, and I believe Thief did. But the point is, you're in an area you're not supposed to be in. So, in most games, you're either stealthed or you're not. You're stealthed, you're fine, you're not, you're, you're screwed, right? It, trespassing and oblivion, that's another example of what I'm talking about. But here, what happens is you don't have to stealth, you can just, you can just be you, and you're disguised. You have a meter, Standing still does nothing, but moving and interacting with stuff slowly empties the meter. When it's out, they can spot you, but it's okay because it's not binary. What instead happens is they walk up to you and they say, hang on a second, and there are multiple dialogue options you can pick to talk your way out of it. Successfully talking your way out of it refills the meter back up to full. You get three of those, three fail states, before you actually get caught. Each time, the difficulty check on those skill checks gets a little bit harder in order to successfully pass. Brilliant. This is a brilliant system, and I hope somehow other games emulate this in some manner, because this is is, is one of the better implementations of stealth in a BRPG that I have ever seen. Because it's not really stealth at this point. It's more like a shroud. You get the idea. That I'm going to gush about, because that's fantastic. I love that. I also want to gush about the quest design. I've already kind of talked about this, because I mentioned this during the dialogue section, but the quest does ping-pong quest design better than most games I've ever seen. What I mean by that is you, you land on a planet, and there's a dude right there, and he says, hey! And you don't have to talk to him, he's optional. But if you talk to him, he's like, hey, i got a quest. I want you to go talk to Bob. Now, Bob also has a quest, unrelated, but Bob does have another quest. If you look, pick up his quest, he will t- tell you to go to Bob too. Bob 2 happens to have another quest, and you see why I call this ping-pong design. It's a form of vectoring that, thanks to the nature of how the flow of the quest designs work, pretty much directs you towards where the quests are without having to have a giant exclamation mark over people's heads. This has, can and has been a problem in several BRPGs before. If you're going through Oblivion or Fallout 3, for example, sometimes knowing who has quests just involves running through town and talking to everyone. And when everyone has a schedule and you can't always find every NPC, that can be problematic and that can be an issue, especially if you don't have a guide or whatever or you haven't played the game before. But this kind of method pretty much guarantees boop, 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 and you have the four quests now. That's awesome and I love that. This is a good time to mention, though, while we're still on the gameplay axis, the, uh, there's two sections of the game that really worked best for me. Edgewater, which is the, the tutorial area, effectively, the, the, the starter, the intro, and Gorgon. Gorgon and Edgewater, both clearly the bulk of the actual effort and time, were spent there. And it shows. Uh, more interesting characters, more fleshed-out options, more uh, dynamic quests, more options through the quests. Lots of Edgewater was, was tutorialized, but not in a bad way. To use an example... One of the things that would happen a lot in Edgewater is you would get a uh, a quest, and there would be six or seven dialogue options, four of which are skill checks, all of which require a skill of one. The point there is to give you the point and the idea that if you push up some of your skills, you can then go and select those things, and that will change how quests can unfold. And the branching design of the quest is also fantastic. Usually, most quests have to end in one of two places, but the method by which you can get to those two places is significant, and of course, you can branch this is actual branching quest design not just all roads lead to Rome but instead all roads lead to Rome and also Constantinople it's not a perfect analogy just work with me here also good that leads me to I suppose we should talk about story I have never in my life seen a game that does corporate horror like this now corporate horror is very specific Because it's very mundane, it's very down-to-earth, it's very believable, and that's what makes it so horrifying. It's the kind of thing that anybody who has worked in a corporate society will look at and be like, yep. You know, if you ever worked in an office building, or if you ever worked at a fast food restaurant or something like that, maybe retail, I've worked all three personally, and yeah, I saw a whole lot of things exaggerated, but I saw a whole lot of things that just made me go, "Uh uh-huh, been there. They also front load this a lot. The very first colon, the very first area wind counter, Edgewater, is absolutely bursting to the seams with probably the most horrifying stuff in the entire game. I wrote down a couple of quick ones just to give you a clause here. The fact that there's this dude who gives a slogan. Now you're probably thinking, okay, why is that so significant? And in fact, a couple people popped up in chat to be like, okay, what? this is just a normal thing. I don't see why this is a big deal. So, obviously I'm failing at explaining myself, so I'm gonna try here in the rumination to do the best I can. Um, I want you to imagine that you work at McDonald's, because that's effectively what Spacer's Choice is. And let's say that you are separate from your job, and you're off talking to a friend of yours. And while you're talking to your friend, you give one of the slogans at McDonald's to them, just as part of normal conversation. Now, that's horrifying. Because, at that point, it showcases the level of brainwashing that's on display here. That people will actually repeat these slogans to each other as part of normal conversation. That's not the most horrifying part. No, it gets worse. Because the actual horrifying thing is the fact that, after saying it, he gets really excited because he feels like he nailed it. Yes! Nailed it! I want you to think about that. I want you to actually really think about that for a moment and process what that means for how bad that is. If I am still failing to describe it, I give up. That was the first thing. And that's one of the first bits of corporate horror you get in the entire game. Which makes sense. Good design. You want to front-load that kind of thing. Hey, this is what you're in for. There's a few other things. You have to rent your graves uh, before you're dead, by the way. You have to schedule sick sick leave weeks in advance. The next of kin, or... Er, they then co- next, uh, next 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 uh, next closest relative, I think, is what they call called it. Means the person who's responsible for the death is the next person relative to the the corpse. So if you stumble upon a dead body, that's your responsibility legally. Now, congrats. The one that really caught me though is at one point, um, one of the characters. This is actually related to the suicide I just referenced. Was talking about how they are upset because the person who committed suicide was a good asset to the company. It's a shame they're gone. To which I said, they were a person, not an asset. Her reaction was to get upset because I just insulted him by daring to call him a person, not an asset. That was insulting. That's corporate horror. The game does it very, very, very well. It also likes to do what Obsidian tends to do best, and it likes to spread out things a little bit so we have some more gray characters. Like I said, most of the horrifying elements were up front. After that, we start to meet more reasonable people. Uh, we actually start with the leader of Edgewater, Reed Thompson, who is actually still one of my favorite characters. In the game, probably my third overall favorite character in the entire game. Because he's uh, not intelligent. But at the same time, most of that is a reaction to his brainwashing. Like he doesn't understand why putting different food in the cannery is causing issues. He also says, without a trace of irony, by the way, he also says, "Yeah, about a year ago, we ran out of our normal food stock, so we had to shift to other food." Also, about a year ago is when the plague started. And then he immediately goes on to mention how plagues are just a bit of a everyday bit of life, and we just have to live with them. By the way, the plague in question was simply malnutrition. In fact, if anything, and this is just my own judgment on this, I think it was something closer to like a common cold, maybe a flu, like a low-tier flu. And people just weren't dealing with it because they were malnutritioned. Funnily enough, we didn't find out about the malnutrition thing until way late game. That is actually true. But the funny thing about Reed is he's not evil at all. You can confront him. And if you decide to kill him, well, that's horrible, but you can actually talk him out of being hostile. But more to the point, you can also talk him into the fact that the, the colony will be better off with, uh, Adelaide in charge. His response is to say that, well, I mean, if, if she is better for the colony, then she should be in charge. And he willingly steps down of power. Peaceful transition. And then you can talk to him for a while after that, and he laments how much he has failed at his job, and it's just, I'm just sitting there like, oh my god, dude! You, but, you, Huh. We see a few people like this. Um, Graham, you'd think he's just a, a straight up evil person, right? That's why he formed, founded. He, he, so Graham, this is all, we're into spoiler territory by the way, it's not obvious at this point. Graham organized the murder of the executive heads of the board, or excuse me, of this specific corporation, the MSI Corporation, so that he and uh, Sanjar could take over. Sanjar's an awesome character, by the way. Now, You might think, well, that's horrible, and you'd be right. But what's interesting is that Graham then spends years trying to make up for that by founding the Iconoclast and being a terrible leader. And I mean so negligent to the point where he is actively making things worse for everyone around him, and if this doesn't sound familiar, he basically acts in every way like a member of the board that he so despises. Completely ignoring the possibilities of long-term gain, trying to do everything he can to focus on completely the wrong things, and a general air of just absolute incompetency. What's interesting, though, this is my guess here, but what's interesting about Graham is he says that he's trying to make up for what happened, but I don't get any vibe of guilt in the strictest sense from him. What I, think, what I get from him is that he feels bad about the fact that he doesn't feel bad. You know, he did this horrible thing, and he killed all these people, and it doesn't bother him. And it bothers him that it doesn't bother him. It's a nice little variance, and it adds some flavor to his character. Zora is, of course, better in every way by virtue of being a freaking competent human being who actually is capable of thinking about the now in addition to the then. And she makes a good pair for Sanjar, who is awesome. Another excellent example of someone who you'd think is just a reedy corporate twit, but no, he actually cares and he actually tries. He's just, he's a bureaucrat. And I mean that is an insult. He is someone who is so tied up in red tape, just in his general mindset, that he actually hampers his own ability to do anything. But there's a decent person underneath there. In fact, he's one of the very few people who, admittedly for pragmatic reasons, admits that keeping employees happy and taken care of is a good thing. Now, if you don't understand why that's a weird thing, let's just say that makes him the extremist amongst the other corporate heads. Yeah... The, um... It's also worth noting Sanjar was pretty horrified when he found out the truth about Graham. I suppose I should talk about our secondary characters, but first I want to talk about the chairman. You remember him? Because I don't. Apparently I didn't write down his name. No, not the chairman, sorry. the. Did I seriously not write his name down? Looks like I did not. Well, I don't remember his name. Not the chairman, though. The chairman's the bad guy. We'll talk about them in a second. No, instead I want to talk about the... Minister. Minister Bob, I don't remember his name. He was another interesting example of someone who's kind of incompetent, but not evil. He's just someone who is in way, way, way in over his head and has no idea what he's doing, and is so dependent on the infrastructure of the political mechanisms, both of Earth and of the colony, that he can't really take any action on his own, even though he wants to. And he does actually want to help, and he does actually want to make things better fascinating characters like this. Again, gray. They they, they really like to focus on their gray. Which, of course, is a great time to talk about the evil ones. Because you need, you know, evil characters in order to flesh out your gray characters, right? I've talked about that before with regards to Dragon Age Origins, for example. So we have two, there's actually several evil characters in this game, but we have two big ones. The two, actually, no, really, they're horrifically, disgustingly, unrelentingly, unforgivably evil characters. That would be Adjutant Uh, Akande, or Kende? I can't remember her name. And Chairman, I can't remember his name either. You're probably wondering why I don't know their names all that well. They didn't really have a lot of screen time, and I forgot to write them down. The interesting thing about the two of them is the Chairman is incompetent evil, and the Adjutant is competent evil. She is crisp, cold. She will actually try to convince you to join her because she recognizes your worth. She will then, in a very calm fashion, explain how this is the only plan that will have any pl- any chance of working, and you need to go and murder these innocent civilians in order to ensure that they cannot in any way threaten the remainder of the colony. She's also against the, the old red tape bureaucracy corporate side of things, and she in many ways shares the views of what the player is probably going to be having walking into this. It's just, she's a... Uh, Well, I don't want to say the word fascist because that word barely has a definition, but you probably get the implication there. Meanwhile, the chairman... Oh, he's a moron. The chairman is someone who actually gets... When you say, I'm so glad I'm going to kill you, his response is, did you know even thinking about trying to kill me is a felony? So do yourself a favor, go into one of the nearby cells and wait there for execution while I go do this. He's not speaking facetiously or sarcastically. He actually expects you to do that. He is... He, he is, if you think stupid, evil, corporate CEO, you're probably picturing him. The two serve as a nice contrast, then, for most of the other characters. I'm not even mentioning, like, June Lay who is an awesome character in her own right, but mostly because of how much of a satellite to Parvati she is. I'm not going to mention, um, you know what? I'm not going to mention any of the others. There's a lot of characters in this game. It's a, it's a big game. It's a 42 hour game for me, and that's counting the DLC. The characters, the, excuse me, the companions, though, that's an interesting example. Now, this happens in most RPGs which have a party. There's one, two, or three. It varies, but there's a, there's a small handful that are really well fleshed out, right? They have, they're, they're very nuanced. They have lots of paths their are can go. They have tons of screen time. They have the most interesting companion quests. You get it. And then there's ones that are kind of good well-designed but just don't get a lot of screen time and then there's the ones that are just kind of ancillary either because they're jokes or because they're they have post uh, character last party member syndrome or whatever you want to call it in this case parvati definitely falls under the most attention paid you can tell that they put the most of their time and effort into her and it shows and it's awesome she's the best character in this game and i can do nothing but gush about her the voice actress is amazing i think it's ashley birch don't quote me on that But the voice actress does an absolutely phenomenal job with managing all the nuances of the role, which really helps to add to the character and the fleshing out thereof. There's also the fact that she is absolutely adorable, and I just want to hug her. But then there's the fact that she, her arc can go several different ways, and you can even talk her into continuing to be in the party despite you being evil at least once, I think twice, depending on how you do it. I don't know personally. I only know the first one because I tested that out and then reloaded. Uh, Unlike Ellie, for example, who just... Bales, if you do her, th- if you, if you kill her parents right in front of her and there's no way to cock con- her out of it. I don't know why, I just killed her parents right in front of her. Actually, I do know exactly why, but let's not get into that. Parvati's side quest is also the most fleshed out. You have to go to basically everyone. It's effectively a world tour. Hit all the zones and do just about every major town, every major area in order to get all the items for her quest. And this is the final reason that she's so awesome, and then I'll move on. It's because her quest is the most personal. Oh sure, the other quests are personal. No, Max and his his uh, his desire to learn about the universe. neoka and her closure with her dead friends. Uh, Ellie and her closure with her parents. I just referenced that one. Felix and his closure with his old boss. Parvati is trying to go out on a date. I the reason I call that more personal is because that's more relatable. It's more mundane. It's more everyday. It's the kind of thing that just about anybody watching this can be like, oh yeah. You know most of us probably have not been through something where our our you know someone we were very very loyal to decided to try and murder us. Most of us have probably not been in a situation where our parents have disowned us and pretended we're dead in order to collect insurance money on us. However, most of us have probably been in a situation where we've wanted to ask someone out on a date. You see what I mean by this? Why I say she's so much more personable? It's because it's so much more relatable. And I think that's the final thing that makes Parvati so awesome. The other characters are fine, don't mistake me. Nyoka's great. I didn't think I would like her at first, but, oh, she grew on me very quickly. She's awesome. She's my other good party member. Felix is very good as well. He just doesn't get much screen time. Max, is, Max was fantastic. And when you go through his quest arc and, you know, he, he comes up with his, his new theory, theory of the universe, that's great. It's just then, then his character stops. Um, Ellie's the same way. Ellie's like, hey, I'm here and I'm cool and I'm awesome and there's this whole thing to me. And even her her quest is actually probably one of the better ones, other than the two big ones. Because hers has the most unstated nuance behind the scenes. She shows up at her parents' place and she wants I gotta talk about this. She shows up and she wants to make a big scene and have them be like, oh my gosh. And when she after you finish talking to her parents, she tells you all that she wanted from that scene. Why? Because she cared. She doesn't say that. She doesn't have to. She obviously cared. She still cares about her parents. That's why she leaves if you shoot them. This is the problem though. She cares about them. They do not care about her. She wanted, she wanted to hurt them or push them or, or top off their monocle. Just to, just to get their attention and to show something and to get some kind of reaction. Because they mattered to her. You don't try to push someone and to get a reaction out of someone you don't care about. Not to that extent and not with that level of prep and pr- planning. By contrast, when we showed up, they were like, oh, can you leave? Because they don't care. She is more valuable to them in terms of money. And that's all they want is the insurance money. And they want to keep their standing with the other Byzantium mists. Byzantines? Hmm. I guess Byzantines would work, but that word has other connotations. Point being, they didn't care. And that's all over the way it's presented here. And of course, her quest is basically then over, and then her character is effectively over, but it was still a really good moment. I want to talk about two other things really quick. Three, excuse me, three other things. The first thing I want to talk about, oh, I guess I should talk about the DLC. I didn't like the Gorgon DLC at all. <sighs> I felt the main plot was something I guessed within the first five minutes, and then they kept building it up and building it up and building it up, as if it was some, and each time they would be like, We built the Marauders. Big reveal. We built the Marauders. Big reveal. Like, they kept hitting the same point. It's like uh, saying, you know, it was his sled, and then treating it like it's a big scene, and then fast-forwarding, and then it was his sled, and I'm like, okay, I know it was his sled. It was his sled. Why are you reemphasizing this? And everyone was, like, so horrified by the fact that it was his sled at every stage. It didn't hit the right tone for me. It was also kind of boring. It involved going to the DLC and then leaving, then going to the DLC and leaving, and then going to the DLC and leaving. Also, all the enemies there were designed for post- or, excuse me, end game enemies. That is to say, they had the same health and armor value that I already complained about earlier. So, it was kind of a slog on top of everything else. So, Sloggy, very combat-focused. Very little of that, qu- that that ping-pong quest design, the branching quest design, the dialogue bosses. Almost none of that was in the DLC. Instead, it was combat, area, combat, area, combat, area. Leave to go to some other place. Come back, combat, area, combat, area. Leave to go to some other place. Combat, area, combat, area. And then there's one actual dialogue interaction at the end of the entire thing. And even that, you cannot do unless you go through a combat area first and or another combat area first. Depending on which path you pick. Not a fan. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is Byzantium strikes me as a true hyper-specialized society. Which is fascinating, because that's a thing that's true in real life and in a lot of other works of fiction. But the problem is, in real life and in fiction, the way that works is because they have other societies they connect with. The problem is Byzantium has nothing else. They tell a story about the the box, right? The suggestions box. Now, inside the box is a shredder. The shredder breaks, but they don't fix it. They don't repair it. Instead, after a while, they just get rid of it, because they don't have the ability or capacity to repair it, because they are hyper-specialized on what they are focused on, which is corporate bureaucracy and the management mismanagement, let's be honest here, thereof. That is how hyper-specialized Byzantium is. Without some kind of external society to Export and import to and from they are doomed and I want to stress when I say that word I don't mean that in in the you know, you're doomed. No when I use that word, you know I mean that word. I mean long-term no feasibility you're screwed doomed I've used that word a few times before on these videos and that's and I mean it when I say it and it adds such a wonderful horrible Beautifully screwed up tint to everything because it only fits under the very specific circumstances that are present here It explains so much about why the colony is so screwed up and so mismanaged. (laughs) Then we go on board the Hope, which is probably my favorite dungeon in the game. You can talk your way through it, you can sneak your way through it, you can fight your way through it, and it's relatively small, doesn't overstay its welcome. There's a couple of alternate paths as far as physically getting around, and there's probably some of the most beautiful non-corporate horror in the entire game there as we find out exactly what happened to the Hope and the people who got basically the Hope left hyperspace or skip space or whatever it's actually called early so early that it would take them another hmm, 60-ish years to make the rest of the trip as opposed to the one year it was supposed to take so naturally they turned to cannibalism but Me saying this is being dismissive. You have to go through and really read the logs and see how things devolve. It's like saying that an orange is delicious. That doesn't really convey much other than a binary good or bad, right? What they do with the hope logs and the hope progression is we see, we we get a really good in-depth, in-slice experience of exactly what these people went through. And the navigator, who was the reason the hope managed to get here, and the captain who sacrificed himself, we don't even know what he did, in order to manage to to get rid of the cannibals, the people on the cannibal side of things, to make sure that the ship had the chance to make it, the rest of the colonists could make it. They also talked about how they'd have to eat two-thirds of the crew in order to make it the rest of the way. Yeah. Very, very wonderfully, beautifully horrific. I suppose the only thing left to talk about is Phineas. I haven't mentioned him yet, because he's hard to put a finger on in the exact same manner the origin analogy I mentioned earlier. He's delicious. You know what I mean. Because he is a fascinating example of a scientist archetype. He is insane and crazy, but, but guilt-ridden, but he has to keep going. But he knows how to take a joke, but he's not sure how to deal with this. But he's very driven, and he's very idealistic, but he knows this isn't going to work. And he in no way tries to excuse what he did, he just has to keep moving forward because there's no other choice. There's a wonderful blend of pragmatism, idealism, and just a little bit of instability, emotional instability, that helps flesh him out, and as usual, make him a very nuanced character. Love it. Last thing I want to talk about. Usually I like to have at least one question in these ruminations for the viewers. Here's my question for you. How well do you think this setting, the, the Outer Worlds game, would fit within the Fallout setting? Now let me explain that a little bit. Obviously when this game was being made, that wasn't even on the table. Because Obsidian was over there, and Zenimax was over there, and the two of them were... <laughs> glare, 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 and have been pretty much ever since New Vegas. For good reasons, at least on Obsidian's side. That, uh, that's different now. <laughs> See, some of you may not be aware of this. For all the, for the television and movie stuff, I record those way in advance. Months and or years in advance. For these post game ruminations, I record these right now. So it is November 2nd, 2020. Double-check that, yep, when I'm recording this. Now, the reason that's relevant is because I can now tell you that Microsoft owns both Obsidian and ZeniMax. The possibility now exists for a Fallout game to, or, excuse me, for The Outer Worlds to exist within the Fallout setting, whereas it was not really feasible when they were making this game. So, the legality has been solved. The copy-wrong issues, copyright issues have been resolved. So now it's possible from a real-life perspective. So that's out the window. From an in-lore perspective, do you think it would work? I think there's a few tidbits that don't line up. The, the biggest one and the most important one I can think of is what happened to the ship that they sent to Earth. The messages not being received makes a degree of sense. After all, the follow-up setting is not exactly in a position to be able to receive, never mind decode or respond to such messages. But... If a ship shows up, well, then they could just land and talk to people. So, unless something went particularly badly there, I mean, basically, that's something that needs to be explained. What do you think? I do hope you enjoyed my thoughts on this post-game rumination. I'll see you guys tomorrow.